Oh, my dear Gonzo. I know it will be painful for a while, but in time, you shall forget all about me. But I already have. Yes, I found somebody else. Oh, uh, well, uh, you have what, uh, what's she like? Well, she's nothing like you at all. Mm -hmm. She's beautiful. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring. The most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, I got my second shot. I'm jealous. I'm getting mine next week. And honestly, I could probably use the rest, so... It laid me out. Good. Everybody get your shot, but man, that, that day after laid me out. I got nothing done. I watched all of Falcon and Winter Soldier. I liked that. I liked that a lot more than I was expecting to. I don't get why people are so down on it. People. Some people are. I think part of it is WandaVision was such kind of like a big swing and it turned out really well. And Winter Soldier is just simply a good show. I thought it was solid. This is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at lunatic daring on Instagram, Facebook, and my nemesis, Twitter, lunaticdaring.com which has our watch list, our bibliography, and all of our episodes. We are currently going through The Muppet Show Season 2, two episodes at a time, and we're actually moving through it real quick. A couple of really good episodes tonight. Yeah, it, this was a great week. And I know a guest star that's very special to both of us, so let's go ahead and get started. All right, let's get things started. It's The Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Miss Madeline Kahn! So, Nick, I sat down this afternoon to watch tonight's episodes. As soon as Madeline Kahn came on screen, I realized how much I loved her. And not like, not like I loved Rita Moreno, not like I love Vincent Price, that like I have a genuine deep down love for this woman. I can understand that completely. And as soon as I saw her, I missed her so much. It's felt so good to see her, even though I've seen this episode several times over the years. But sitting down to watch it tonight with my family, I was like, oh, I love this woman so much. So tell me a little bit about tonight's guest star. Madeline Kahn, born Madeline Gail Wolfson on September 29th, 1942 in Boston, to one Bernard Wolfson and one Frida Wolfson. Both of her parents would divorce when she was two. She was sent to the Monument Boarding School in Bristol, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. She would begin acting around the time she was six in 1948, just like small school productions. Her mom would remarry in 1953 to one Hiller Kahn, who would later adopt Madeline. She had two half-siblings, one from each parent. She graduated from Martin Van Buren High School and earned a scholarship to Hofstra University. By the way, I forgot that Martin Van Buren was one of our presidents. Yes. And I knew I'd heard that name somewhere. I used to be able to do every president in order, but now I can probably only go back to like World War II. Still something. While she was in college, she worked as a singing waitress at a restaurant called Bavarian Manor, and she would do... This would be, I think, where some of the opera chops would start to come in a little bit. She was also a member of the Delta Chi Delta sorority. She would graduate from Hofstra University in 1964 with a degree in speech therapy, which makes sense because I know her primarily as a character actor. 
And she's really, really good with accents. She's really, really good with doing impressions or encapsulating a character with just her voice. Yeah, just a very distinctive voice. She briefly taught public school before pursuing acting full-time. Her stage debut was as a chorus girl in a play called Kiss Me Kate. She would have two other stage roles that she would be offered, but they would be written out of the script before the premiere. Her first film was a short film called De Duva, uh, which is a translation for The Dove. It's apparently a parody of Ingmar Bergman-type movies that came out in 1968. She would make her Broadway debut the following year with Leonard Silma's New Faces of 1968. She would also perform her first professional lead in a special concert performance of the operetta Candide on Leonard Bernstein's 50th birthday. She was singing a lot. Um, and I'm gonna gloss, she's got a lot of credits to her name, so I'm going to gloss over a few of them. But she appeared in Two by Two on Broadway in 1970 and on the 20th Century in 1978. She would be fired from the latter show early in its run. Um, and this happened a couple of times. There, there aren't a lot of details about why. Usually it's presented as artistic differences or something to that effect. Personality clashes or something. Probably, yeah. Her first feature film I have actually seen, and I had a viscerally negative reaction to, but it's uh, What's Up, Doc, which came out in 1972. Howard, I said five minutes. I'm sorry, Eunice. Eunice? That's a person named Eunice. Where have you been? I had a little problem in the drugstore. Steve, you didn't tell me you were married. We're not married. Congratulations. But we will be soon. Condolences. Who is this person? I haven't the vaguest idea. She was behind a rock in the drugstore. Oh, come on, Steve. You can tell Why is she calling you that name? Don't pay any attention to her, Eunice. Look, Miss Max. You know her name. Eunice, I swear this is a bizarre joke. Sure, Eunice. it's easy for you everywhere you go. Another heartbroken. Women, women, women. You call it joking. Eunice and I, we call it lust. She was in that. She played this very shrewish wife. They did her dirty. It was, But I had a lot of problems with that movie, um, which I feel bad about because a buddy of mine showed it to me and introduced it as one of his favorites. But that's a separate conversation. She would have a role in Paper Moon in 1973, which would give her the nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Look, I'll tell you what. Want me to show you how to use cosmetics? Look, I'll let you put on my earrings. You're going to see how pretty you're going to be. And I'll show you how to make up your eyes and your lips. And I'll see to it you get a little bra or something. But right now, you're going to pick your little ass up. You're going to drop it in the back seat. And you're going to cut out the crap. You understand? She was fired from the 1974 MAME by Lucille Ball for artistic differences. Uh, but 1974 would actually turn out to be a very good year for her. I could see her and Lucy Buttonheads. I have no concept of who Lucy is off screen. Like, I know that she helped get Star Trek on the air, but I don't. I know she is a powerhouse, but I don't have a concept of what her personality was like. In 1974, Madeline would star in Blazing Saddles and Young, Young Frankenstein. Penny for your thoughts. Mm. <laughs> You're incorrigible, aren't you? Mm. You little zipper neck. Mm. <sighs> All right. Seven has always been my lucky number. Come over here, you hot monster. Mm. 
Chad, you've got to forgive me. I still haven't seen Young Frankenstein. Of all the things, I'm like, I like forgive you the least for that one. That's fair. It's not like I've been avoiding seeing the movie. I just haven't seen it. Madeline would collaborate with Brooks for the last time in 1981's History of the World Part 1, and which was... Er, <laughs> it was another Sorry. very, very memorable role. I think I skipped over her working with him on High Anxiety in 1977. I can't wait to go pull the audio clips. <laughs> Empress Nympho! Empress Nympho! Miriam! What are you doing here? You are a vestal virgin. You know that babies are not allowed outside the palace without an escort. Empress, this man just saved our lives. Now they want to kill him. We need your help. Which one? The white guy or the color guy? The color... The slave. Please spare his life. I beg you. Perhaps you can use him at the palace. He's truly gifted. Gifted? Bob! Yes, Your Highness. Oh, Bob! Do I have any openings that this man might fit? In 1983, she would have a short-lived sitcom called Oh, Madeline. Oh, Charlie, I hope this didn't completely ruin your Saturday. Oh, no, no, no. In fact, I wouldn't consider any weekend complete without a chance to sit in airport traffic during a monsoon. <laughs> well, I, for one, certainly feel better knowing that the Volvo floats. Just <laughs> don't understand why we couldn't find my sister. Maybe I didn't make it clear where we were supposed to meet. Marilyn, we ran all over the airport looking for her. I mean, she just wasn't there. I stopped so many people, they thought I was a Mooney. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's why that man was swatting you over the head saying you stole my child's mind. I don't think it made it past like six episodes, but it's... It was a localization of a British sitcom called Pig in the Middle. <laughs> It didn't, Sounds about right. it didn't go very far. She would be nominated for a Tony in 1989 for her role as Billy Dawn in the play Born Yesterday. She would return to the Muppets in the Muppet movie as a, a small role like many of our other guests will. Hello, sailor. Buy me a drink. Oh, easy. I, I'm not a sailor. I'm a frog. That's a small talk and buy me a drink. She was also in Clue. Everyone's going to recognize her from Clue. I didn't realize she was an American Tale or A Bug's Life. Those are both movies from my childhood. Bug's Life? Yeah, she was the moth. Oh, okay. So now we've got Phyllis Diller and we've got Madeline Kahn. So let's see how much of the cast of A Bug's Life we can <laughs> get together. Her final film was the 99 independent movie Judy Berlin. And unfortunately, she would develop ovarian cancer in 1998. She was working on not the Cosby show, but a show just called Cosby, which was a, I guess, a spiritual successor to the Cosby show. And she was also involved with Little Bill. She was on the first two episodes of Little Bill. She passed away on December 3rd, 1999, and she would be cremated three days later. There is a bench dedicated to her memory in Central Park, with a possible exception of What's Up Doc, but I don't claim What's Up Doc on Madeline Kahn. I've never seen her on screen and not loved her. She's one of my favorite funny people ever. And she's, when you hear people talk about character actors, you'll probably go through like a list of four or five. And a lot of people who have appreciation for Madeline might not consider her. But one of the things that's so interesting about this episode, and I think you might've touched on it briefly earlier, it's weird seeing her as her. It's not unwelcome at all. It's actually, I love it, but no. it's, yeah, she's not doing a bit in the backstage sections. She's like, you could absolutely see yourself just sort of hanging out with her and hearing her tell stories. She has this, what I would call her stage voice almost, or her comedic stage voice. Yeah, that's kind of shrill mm -hmm. and uh, big and brassy. And so, yeah, to see her in this episode just, like, talking like a person, you're right. It sounds really weird to say, but I, I loved it so much because I don't – I'm sure there's interviews and stuff that I could go check out. Maybe I will. Just seeing her as her was really cool. <laughs> was really cool. 
she will sink in or she's sunk into any role that I've seen her in in a way that you'll recognize that it's her. But like, well, she sinks in, but then she also blows you out of the water. Exactly. Though, right. She doesn't stay hidden. <laughs> she was never a subtle actor. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen her in any dramas. And so I'd like to maybe check out Paper Moon. I don't think I've ever seen that. I'm curious about that one, too. She was great. She is great. And uh, she's great in this episode. The Muppet Show, episode 209, featuring guest star Madeline Kahn. It's produced between July 26th and July 28th, 1977. It would premiere in the UK on October 7th, 1977, and in the United States on September 30th. Our director is Philip Casson, and it was written by Jewel, Henson, Hinckley, and Bailey. I just got a message from Aaron. Hmm. The Reds apparently pitched a no-hitter tonight. I missed it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just wasn't paying attention, but yeah. Ground ball! Former wizardry from Wade Miley! A no-hitter in baseball history! Wade Miley, awesome. Here, good. Okay. In our cold open, Madeline Kahn is preparing to go on when Sam the Eagle comes into the room. And Sam, I guess, means, well... <laughs> he always does this, though. I won't let you do it. Do you hear me? I won't let an artist of your beauty and integrity go up there and work on this weird sick show he refuses to allow madeline to go on because she's beauty and grace and classy she puts on a, a wig that looks like it wouldn't be out of place on the head of rod stewart yeah yeah no, you're right yeah and a pair of groucher mark sunglasses and i want to call it a kazoo i know it's not a kazoo it's like that party favor that you blow on yeah it's just a party favor noisemaker <laughs> sam just gives up immediately he's just like oh you're on. First of all, it means that he's never seen any of her work if he thinks she's too dignified to go out there. No. He's never seen anything she's ever done, if that's the case. My tits are falling off! And, uh, yeah, and I wrote down here, I'm instantly in love again. Mm -hmm. Even with the Rod Stewart hair, which I'll admit is not the best look for her. But we, we go through the theme. Statler and Waldorf have decided not to face the stage. Yeah, I thought that was funny. When Gonzo blows his trumpet, orange smoke comes out. Yeah, wasn't it like green smoke last time? I don't remember. So Kermit comes out and introduces the show, and he goes straight into... Many of you people have been writing in to ask the question, can the frog tap dance? <laughs> and of course, the answer to that is... It is. The curtains go up, he sinks back, and the sketch starts. The cinematic technique they use reminds me of shopping malls in the 80s. I did not go to any shopping malls in the 80s, but I saw a lot of movies that happened to take place in shopping malls in the 80s, and something about those glamour shots and, like, the the sort of honeycomb image. Or the kind of kaleidoscopic, I guess, image. Yeah. We, we get to see Kermit tap dance, kind of. Uh, we never... You missed the best part, which is the first line, which is, everyone always asks me, can the frog tap dance? <laughs> Love it. But we never see his feet. Jim's no. doing a great job, but like... It is a masterwork of editing and sound design. Happy feet, I've got those happy feet. Give them a low-down beat, and they begin dancing. I've got those ten little tapping toes. And when they hear a tune, I can't control my dancing heels to save my soul. Weary blues. Yeah, he tap dances without, without us seeing his feet. And it's, I think, a tour de force. Illusion, performance, editing, sound design. I'm guessing the, the taps were recorded ahead of time. So the way Jim is miming to the taps as well as singing the song. Like even before it gets to the, the B point of view with like 600 Kermits on screen. Mm -hmm. It's a really good, fun performance that creates the complete illusion that Kermit the Frog is tap dancing. I love this one. It's a blast. 
It was a fun one to open with for sure. Scary blues can't get into our shoes because our shoes refuse to ever grow weary. We keep tearful on an earful of music sweet because we've got hap, hap, happy. Let's get to Gonzo and not understanding social cues. So actually, this is something I did want to touch on because first, I kept waiting for Gonzo to sing a real life girl. But secondly, <laughs> pardon me, miss, but I've never done this with a real live girl. I thought about that today, too. For context, we go backstage. Gonzo is working with Eric the Yodeling Clam for his new act. And the thing is, this one actually seems like it might work. He doesn't have a live chicken. To be fair, the clam is yodeling. Yeah, I mean, that's all he's promising. Yeah, we get to see the lovely Madeline Khan, and she's a fan of Gonzo's. Are you all right? Uh, yeah. yeah. <gasps> well, I'm glad. Why? I mean, why? Well, why did you say you were glad? Well, I... I think you're terrific on the show. You do? Yeah. I'd, I'd hate to say anything happened to you, especially... You would? Well, yeah. Of course. Wow. Look, you're not just kidding around here, are you? Of course I'm not kidding. I think you're terrific. She basically just says, I would hate for you to get hurt. Basically, Gonzo falls in love with Madeline Kahn and thinks that Madeline Kahn is in love with him because she basically doesn't want him to get killed. She did say that she thought he was terrific, but she might have just been trying to boost his ego. Gonzo's clearly misreading cues because far be it from Gonzo to misread a cue. Gonzo's also starved for any sort of positive attention, really. It would be easy to tag the backstage story and Gonzo's kind of like his one-sided whirlwind romance that he has with her as being, I don't know, problematic or something. But like, he's so unloved, at least that he feels that he's so unloved that any affection whatsoever gets misinterpreted. It's not like the show is on his side in this. It also kind of is. And this is something that I, I'm surprised because this is something that I, I wasn't expecting going into the watch for the podcast. Jim is really, really good at giving examples of how to process emotions, negative emotions, in ways that aren't destructive. And we can see that if we go back to the first iteration of It's Not Easy Being Green, Kermit could have been an absolute monster, but he just processed his jealousy and he moved on. With the real live girl bit, like, he's clearly an incel, but, like, he's just sort of processing it. In this, we get to see Gonzo go through those, those stages as the episode progresses, and he's not nasty to Madeline. He's not... No. Tearing his hair out or anything like that. He's just trying to process how to how to handle it. A pretty woman told him that uh, she thought he was cool. And that's all that happens. But in his brain, he goes off in a whole nother direction. Look, if you have kids that aren't allowed to eat sugar and they have that first Slurpee, we get to see examples acted out in, mean, in real time without them being preachy. Because the preachy or the, uh, the shaming aspect that comes into a lot of these conversations... Gonzo is absolutely getting the wrong impression. There's absolutely potential for him to cross a boundary or create an issue, right? But he's not Statler waiting backstage with a plant. He's just wrong. And when he finds yeah. out he's wrong, he's hurt. But he immediately goes to that place where, like, he acknowledges that he's feeling rough and he tries to process it. And by the end, he's feeling okay. Yeah. There's a lot of Gonzo in both these episodes. True. I was reminded of reading interviews with David Laser talking about how 
when they booked a guest. Now, I don't know when this started, so I don't know if they were already doing this in season two or not. Actually, I know they were doing this in season two because Rudolf Nureyev, who we're going to get soon, the ballet dancer, told them that he wanted to dance with Miss Piggy, and they kind of made that happen. So one thing they would ask is, hey, do you like the show? Are there any Muppets that you would like to interact with? So I like to think that Madeline was like, give me some gonzo. From there, we we move into uh, Madeline potentially influencing a young Tarantino. Uh, she sings a okay, song. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, called "Your Feet." Now, this is a weird song. Now, first of all, we had "Happy Feet," and now we have a song called "Your Feet." By my math, Quentin was born in like '63, mm-hmm. so he would have been like 15. So I don't know if he's too old there to be completely impressionable. Would you give a guy a foot massage? Fuck you. You give him a lot? you. You know, I'm kind of tired. I could use a foot massage myself. Yo, 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 man. You best back off. I'm getting a little pissed here. This episode's got a lot of feet in it. It's true. And we get to see our old buddies, the mutations. I've forgotten your eyes, cause they no longer hypnotize my memory. I've forgotten your nose, the way that it rose in some kind of dignity. And I've forgotten your lips and your cool fingertips, so sort of sweet. But I'll never forget, no, I'll never forget your feet. This is a weird... So I wrote this down in the notes, but I wanted to talk about it. So this song, it is credited to Ronnie Graham. Now, Ronnie Graham is an actor and a writer. He co-wrote History of the World and Spaceballs. He was one of Mel Brooks's writing partners. He also played the minister in Spaceballs. I'm sick of this. I don't give a damn who it is, but I'm going to marry somebody today. Who are you? I'm the best man. What's your name? Barf. Your full name? Bartholomew. Are you the one that's getting married? No. Then get over there! Which makes sense. There's a connection there, right, with her and Mel Brooks, so it makes sense that she would know him. But I can't find out anything else about the song. I don't know what it's from. I don't know why it was written. I don't know who it was written for. No idea. Couldn't find anything else about it. Hmm. Just a song about loving feet. Not about loving feet. It's about loving a particular person's feet. More than any other aspect of the person, because the rest of them is largely forgettable, but it's... Yeah, that's kind of what the song is about. I'm tired of looking at your ears, but I still like your feet. <laughs> Big, fun, silly number. Totally on brand for Madeline, too. Like, she's she's completely at home. At some point, I think they just sort of walk over her, and she's absolutely there for it. She's crawling in between their legs, trying to get... No, she's all over the place in it. Yeah. This is the on-screen Madeline Kahn persona that we're talking about, as opposed to the kind of 70s girl who was dressed kind of hip backstage, you know? But also, she can sing. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize she had as much background in singing. In all those movies, she's always putting on a voice. Mm-hmm. The speech therapist thing made absolute sense when I came across this. Yeah. I was like, that's a whole toolbox for her. That's amazing. You think that foolish, fabulous, fantastic and to Animal doing a drum solo of Gershwin's Foggy Day. This is really short. <laughs> a foggy day in the like, I blinked and missed it, and I was just like, wait, did I... I had to go back over, and I was like, did I miss a punchline, or...? This is shorter than a Wayne and Wanda sketch. 
Yeah, I, I thought it was the uh, the UK spot for a minute. No, he just comes out and plays a little bit of Georgian Ira Gershwin's Foggy Day, but like just kind of hits the drums a few times, says Foggy Day, and then that's the end. The audience is not enthused. I'm always happy to see Animal, um, unless Lena Hetty, not Lena Hetty, uh, unless I can't believe Lena Horn. Lena Horn is on screen. Wow. Lena Hetty, Lena Horn. Same person, not remotely. I can see how you get them mixed up. Here's what this felt like. Hey, uh, hey, uh, Frank, we're 15 seconds short. <laughs> get behind the drums. We're just going to grab a camera, one setup, and uh, just do something, and we'll get the rights later. You're probably right. Go grab Animal, and let's just do something stupid. <laughs> I fucking Even the fact that it, you know, it ends prematurely, which is obviously the point, it still feels incomplete. It still feels like they did, there's, it's too short. There's not enough time for a joke. Yeah, there aren't really any comedic beats outside of the abrupt cut. I wrote down, it's like a Scott Pilgrim song. (laughs) Goes a little something like this. Thank you. From there, we go backstage again, and (laughs) we see some kind of character growth, if not self-awareness, coming from Gonzo. I love this scene so much. There's, I love this scene so very much. They did it just right. Like, Frank played Piggy just right, because you never get the impression that Piggy actually wants Gonzo. Of course not. But she also, when he starts making that comparison... I think even before the comparison, though. Because remember, we haven't touched on Gonzo's crush for Piggy. That's been introduced exactly once in... It was either... It wasn't the finale. It was... Was it the finale? Where they introduced his crush on Piggy. This is now the end of his crush on Piggy. <laughs> There's no more. But I actually think that even before he starts to be like, oh, she's beautiful and she's talented in contrast to her. I think when he says, like, I found somebody. No, she doesn't want Gonzo, but she doesn't mind somebody wanting her, even if it's that little creep. It's still her losing someone's affection. And she's a creature that lives on affection. And it's also someone placing another woman above her, which she does not right. react well to. You know, I've always had this crush on you. I came to tell you that I'm not going to bother you anymore. I'm sorry. Good. I'm glad you finally come to your senses. Well, oh, oh, my dear Gonzo, I know it will be painful for a while, but in time, you shall forget all about me. But I already have. Then he starts to twist the knife. (laughs) She's beautiful. She's talented. She's intelligent. She's nothing like you. And I'm very happy. So you see, breaking up with you isn't painful at all. Not until now. (laughs) So good. And just the build up. And I mean, you know what's coming by the end of it. He really does think he's just coming in and being like, great news. I'm in love with somebody else. And she's so much better than you. Listen, Gonzo's kind of horny, but I don't think he's... I don't think he knows what that is yet. Gonzo is doing all these off-the-wall acts with hope that they would be well-received and understood because he's a weirdo. And to hear Madeline say that he's terrific probably short-circuited something because that's something that he was not prepared for. And then right before Piggy punches him in the face, (laughs) did you notice he's kind of accepting of it? Or like, it's not accepting. He gives kind of an oh shit look. He's like, oh shit, I'm about to get decked. Like it gets, goals is so good in this scene. But yeah, as soon as Piggy's like, I'll show you pain, Gonzo's like, uh, I know what's coming now. <laughs> or, I mean, he looks genuinely scared. There's a moment where he's like, ah, oh, crap, I hit the, eh, I got the high yaw. 
I was hoping to do this without getting chopped, you know? She didn't step on him this time, though. Did any of tonight's episodes come with a content warning on Disney Plus? It did not. Really? There is no content warning on this episode. I actually watched these on Cinco de Mayo. I was kind of laughing at the timing. There's a, I guess we'll call it a rescue attempt. We've got a number of Spanish-speaking lobsters that come in who are armed and willing to commit great acts of violence in order to rescue their friend from the pot. They're, they're banditos. They're Mexican banditos. We can call them that. Yeah. It's okay. That's what they are. That's what they are. They're lobsters dressed up as Mexican banditos, which would have been a very common movie stereotype at the time. Yeah. But uh, it's still funny. It is. It's it's a nice, it's a tidy one. I, I think this is actually yeah. probably one of the shorter Swedish chef sketches that I've seen. Yeah, it's pretty short. It's also pretty bizarre. Like, even for the Muppets... I'd say this early, it's pretty bizarre. There's an incredible amount of freedom in writing a show like this, just from from that point of view and from an artistic point of view as well, you know, because you can sit down and, and, and type almost any insane fantasy you can think of on paper, and um, there are people standing by to do it. It's just so out of the blue. Like, there's no correlation between lobsters and Mexican bandits. Not that I'm aware of. No, you know, that's true. Maybe there's something out there. It's just, what if they're Mexican bandits that come and rescue their friend? Yeah, no warning. I actually have that in big letters on my thing. No warning. Question is, do we think it should have had one? I don't know. Yeah. Um, like, contextually, it's absurdist. I don't yes. think... That's the word I was searching for. Yeah. <laughs> there's no grand statement being made. It's just, we don't know what to do. We've written ourselves into a corner. Someone should burst through the door with a gun. Like... When we're in Swedish chef land, I don't know, man. It's like... You either make fun of everyone who doesn't speak English or you make fun of nobody <laughs> who, who doesn't speak English. In the world of the Swedish chef, we make fun of other languages. I don't even think it's making fun of other languages, though. I think it's making fun of, like, just our not understanding other languages or something. I don't know. It's fine. I, it didn't bother me, but I'm not uh, Mexican, so I don't know. <laughs> From there, we get our UK spot with uh, Floyd singing New York State of Mind, which... I know the song, so I don't know if it just strikes me as odd, because it would have been a recent release at the time. It's a Billy Joel song from 1976, from his album Turnstiles. Big hit. You're always happy to see the mayhem on there. I was just surprised, because it's... It's a lot more recent than I think most of the other music we're going to hear on the show. Yeah, it's not even the full mayhem. It's just Zoot, Teeth, and uh, Floyd. No drums. There's no guitar. I loved how well Goals played Zoot waiting, right? Because Zoot only comes in at certain times during the song with the sax. Mm. 
and there's really great kind of character moments where Zeus just kind of waiting to play his part. But yes, you're right. It is a very recent song, which they, they, they will do a few more of those, but yeah, it's pretty recent, but it's a, it's not, there's not much to talk about. It's a very straightforward performance, but, but really well done. favorite type of pigs in space where everyone is wrong yeah honestly i was pulling for piggy to be right because yeah she could use a win they're stuck right there lost power steering <laughs> right and so when last we left the spaceship swine track it was drifting aimlessly in space due to the loss of power in the steering mechanism mm. are you sure we've lost power on our steering mechanism link oh i'm afraid so doctor Link tells Piggy not to touch his console because that's what the captain is supposed to do. Yep. And Piggy is sure that, as usual, Link would be wrong about it. There's one lever, one lever that she thinks will fix it. And he says he already tried that, and she doesn't believe him. To be fair, would you? Try that one. What, this one here? Mm -hmm. I already did. I didn't see you. You don't have to see me. I'm the captain. No. And then Dr. Strangeport backs him up and she even says, like, uh, you men are always sticking together. But in this case, she was wrong. She was, but there was a little bit of poetic justice there because she still managed to get Link. Yeah, caught in the door. As soon as Link's like, don't touch my stuff, he goes, I'm going on break. Strangeport, make sure she doesn't touch my stuff. She goes over to pull the lever and Strangeport doesn't move. He just sits there and goes, no, don't. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, would you want to, like, get in the way of Piggy when she's on a mission? No, I think Strangeport wanted to see what happened. He probably knew exactly what that lever did. I like the ones where everybody's an idiot and everybody's wrong. So we get to, they're doing different things with Fozzie now, which I guess was going to be yeah. a given, but it's not just him and Statler and Waldorf anymore. Since they figured out Fozzie in the first season, he is now full on one of the stars of the show and they know it now and they, they he's much more up front and center. Okay, now here is Fozzie Bear and his magic ukulele playing one of the great classics from the musical theater. <laughs> was early last September, as near as I can remember, while strolling down the lane in Pipsy Pride. Well, it's a, a song written by Benjamin Hapgood Burt and F.W. Bowers in 1933. It was recorded by a number of artists, including Jim Croce, who we, we featured a song from, was it last episode or the episode before last? Last week. Time in a Bottle, yeah. And bottle. Harry Belafonte, who will be a guest on one of our later episodes it is a song about i guess effectively not being able to hold your liquor it's a temperance theme song right it's it's actually a song about how it's bad to drink hmm. it was a song that was in support of the temperance movement 
you know, the, the, the prohibition movement. So it was like a pro-prohibition song. I have a problem with this sketch, though. That- so the, the premise of the song is that basically it's just a drunk guy. He's had too much to drink. And the punchline is that he's sitting there with a pig. And the punchline is that, you know, you can tell what's what's the line. Um, you can tell a man who boozes by the company he chooses. And a pig got up and slowly walked away. But then at the end, a bunch of pigs come out on stage and they're mad at him. But the pig is not the brunt of the joke in the song. They've completely misunderstood the song. To be fair, I mean, it's still saying that not even a pig would want to be next to you. Pigs seem to be the dominant species in Muppet Land, right? Is there more pigs than there is anything else? Um, there are a lot of Maybe chickens. chickens. Yeah. There are also a lot of frogs. So we get to see Madeline again, which is always a treat. She performs a sketch called Happy Girl Meets a Monster with a Muppet that I haven't seen before, I don't think, called Dog Lion. I think this is the first time we've seen him, like, kind of featured. Madeline wanders through a park set, which I think we saw on the Sandy Duncan episode. Very similar, yeah. Where she's going through the park, expressing gratitude and admiration for all sorts of things, while the dog lion is in the background. What a beautiful sunny day. I just love sunny days because they are so beautiful. Hmm? When the sun shines, it just makes everything look so nice that I wish the sun would never stop shining. (laughs) (laughs) Never crunch, grand Uh, there are some very nice things about rainy days, too. While in set to destroy anything Madeline decides that she's enjoying. Yes. He knocks over benches. He kicks through flower beds. He's generally just being a, a toddler throwing a tantrum. And Madeline's trying to stay optimistic throughout the whole thing until she decides to turn her attention on him. and Until he turns to violence. Until he shoots a bird. <laughs> he did shoot a bird. The look on her face. My kids were horrified. <laughs> yeah, the joke is, like, every time she says, like, oh, I love it when it's sunny, he's like, it makes it rain. And I think that I like rainy days just as much as I like sunny days. <laughs> After all, the rain makes the, the pretty flowers grow, and I just love the pretty flowers. She goes, just listen. Listen to that lovely little bird singing. He shoots it. He pulls out. I don't think you actually see a gun or it's tiny. And he fires, but then you hear the bird die and hit the ground off screen. And the look on her face is amazing when that happens. She's just horrified. And that's when she takes him down. Literally. In fact, you're perfectly awful. You are so awful that it is truly beautiful. Yeah. He can't handle being beautiful. He can't handle being perfect. He can't handle the compliments. And he starts to shrink and shrink and shrink. This routine was first done on the Today Show in 1963 with these two characters named Sue and Sneagle. They don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Not Smeagle, but Sneagle, who were created for a series of unaired traffic safety commercials, which you can actually find online, a couple of them. It was a campaign that never took off. They also did it on the Tonight Show 
And then if you listen to, if you go back and listen to my episode about the Ed Sullivan show, they did this on Ed Sullivan with the little girl Sue puppet and Beautiful Day Monster, who is named Beautiful Day Monster because that sketch is called A Beautiful Day. It's kind of the tall blue uh, monster. I'm sure that you've tried all your life to be perfectly awful, working and working year after year just to be as bad as possible. And now all your toil and self-sacrifice has made you a success. You set yourself a goal and you have succeeded. So, Oh, you are to be congratulated. Uh-huh. Yeah. You are so awful that it is truly beautiful. In fact, you are the perfect example of beautiful awfulness. And uh, so this is something they've done before, but it's the first time they've done it with a human actor playing one of the parts. Every other time it's been two puppets. Did you catch how they did this with the shrinking? I mean, I, I don't know the name of the technique, but I could. They did a couple of shots where they cut away. They would cut to her close up of her and they cut back and he'd be smaller. And then it cuts to this wide shot and he is clearly being like either he's either being optically printed or she's a rear projection. I don't know what it is, but obviously they're not existing in the same space. They're just shrinking the image on the screen, basically. Clearly a little bit of image degradation. Mm-hmm. So you can tell it's a special effects shot. And then uh, she eventually shrinks him down to the point. <laughs> she has a great line. She looks right at the camera and says, uh, Sometimes you have to talk your troubles down to a size to where you can handle them. So he gets super tiny, right? He gets the size of like a uh, football, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I love before she she takes her umbrella and she's going to whack him like it's a golf ball. But before she does that, she like takes off her purse and like throws it angrily. She's really getting into it. And then she does a really kind of half-assed golf swing. I was expecting her to punt him. Punting would have been good. I was wondering, like, did they not do any more takes of that? Because, like, she kind of hits it and it kind of rolls off, but it's not like a big blow, you know? It felt, I was like, it was a little bit of a letdown because I was like, is that, oh, okay. I was waiting for some kind of effect when she hit him or something. I think a good use of her talents, though. She was great in the scene. We aren't the only people that notice how amazing Madeline is. We go backstage again and Gonzo is... Fully committed, ready to jump in with both feet. He tells Kermit that he and Madeline are getting married, and we realize that as off-kilter as Gonzo is, he wants a lot of the same things that people ostensibly would have wanted in the 70s, uh, to move to the suburbs and buy a station wagon and join the PTA, which I don't (laughs) think I will ever want to join the PTA, but... I'm doing my best to avoid it. Yeah... I don't know if he's listening, but my buddy Sean's dad, John O'Banion, was a, uh, an actor, a little bit, and a singer. He did a lot of talk shows and stuff, right? You look at me, and I can see the feeling's gone. What happened to the dream we planned of future on? You turn away and try to say what we both know. We lost John a while back. He, but he was like a said he was a he was a cool dude, a good look, really good looking guy, really just kind of hip, um, and to the outside, of course, you know, and and just very popular. He was at a PTA meeting one time at someone's house, and while they were talking, he kept going around turning the lights down. He would just wander from room to room, like turn the lights down a little bit. And finally, someone's like, "John, can you not do that?" And he goes, "Lady, you have no f-ing idea how to throw a party." <laughs> Just always, whenever I think of the PTA, I think of John O'Banion. Gonzo. He's in his tux. He's in a tux. Uh, he's talking to Kermit about his plans to marry Madeline because she was nice to him. Um, 
Yeah. It doesn't take much. She was nice to me that one time, so we're going to have kids. Exactly. It's how that works. Kermit reminds Gonzo that... Wait a second. You haven't even asked her yet? Kermit, she's crazy about me. Yeah, don't you think you're rushing things a little? I mean, even buying a new tuxedo before oh, you... Oh, even... no, this tuxedo isn't new. Gonzo doesn't have time to worry about that kind of thing. He's He's got to move fast. Nick, if he stops to think about it, he'll have to think about it. I don't think he will. There is something funny about Gonzo's tux, though. Yeah. <laughs> because so, this is important later. The thing is, I this is one of the times that I've related to Gonzo the most, though, because I don't have a lot of suits. I think I've got one good suit for funerals, weddings, and, like... Gonzo suit is a gag suit and the tricks start popping out and honestly that in a more conventional setting that might have been endearing to the right woman but it's the tuxedo that Gonzo had left over from when he was trying to be a magician there's a bun there's a rabbit we don't see the rabbit under the hat but it's there he, he, oh, he calls it, it bun, like bun bun yeah here's a Muppet news flash reports are coming in from all over the world that television news reporters are blowing up these unlikely rumors... I mean, you don't, you don't have to be crazy hairy to see where this is going. No. From there, we, we see Rolf. And the candelabra is always stressing mm-hmm. me out because I'm waiting for it to fall over and send drought. Yeah, Rolf. it's back. And it was shaking a lot this time. Of course, Rolf is performing a, sh- a song called Up, Up, and Away. And... Up, up, and away! I mean, the, the candelabra just sort of takes off. It's very similar to the animal one, where it, like, it feels just a little too short. Yeah, this one has more of a... Like, at least I get the punchline to this one. Yeah. But it feels a little too short. But yeah, he starts singing Up, Up, and Away, the Fifth Dimension song. And then his candelabra takes off like a rocket ship. It's weird. Again, it's super short. But I I feel terrible now. Well, it it wasn't your fault, Madeline. I mean, uh, you know, Gonzo doesn't get many compliments, so when he does hear one, he kind of goes bananas. We get to see non-character Madeline again. Yeah. Uh, where Kermit... Well, I mean, I, I was just trying to be nice to Gonzo. I mean, I'd marry him. I'm going to marry him. Listen, Kermit, you you got to help me find him, okay? Okay, well, I'll go check the prop room. I'll look upstairs. I guess this is the responsible thing for him to do. Yeah, I think he's doing Gonzo a favor. Yeah. By telling Madeline Gonzo's plans. Gonzo overhears Kermit telling her about his plan to ask her for marriage and her being understandably confused and kind of concerned. And he's he's heartbroken... He sits down alone to sing Wishing Song. I wish I had a coat of silk, the color of the sky. I wish I had a lady fair as any butterfly. I wish I had a house of stone that looked down on the sea. But most of all, I wish that I was someone else but me. Which was written by Paul Tracy in 1974, another relatively recent one. It was from the album Something Else. Uh, Paul Tracy was a South African singer, songwriter, and actor. We've seen one of his songs on the Muppet Show before, actually. It was The Ugly Song. I'm ugly, I'm ugly as sin. We will see a couple other ones used in the future as well. Madeline walks in and hears Gonzo singing the song, and she she effectively offers to be his friend and, like, says sorry for hurting his feelings, or... And Gonzo, for his part, is just like, well, you know... There's anything I can ever do for you. There is one thing. What? Let me finish my song. Oh, of course. It's the best. He sings the first verse of this sad song. This song is very much like an ain't easy being green mm-hmm. in the structure. 
You have one verse, which is the sad verse about what you don't have or things you don't have. I don't have a lady. I don't have a house on the sea. And then the second verse is the redemptive verse, right? Where you embrace who you are, where, you know, green's the color of spring, right? That moment. So it's very much a being green type situation. What I'm, I so love about this moment, though, is that if she hadn't come in, he's still singing the second half of that song. Now I don't have a coat of silk, but still I have the sky. Now I don't have a lady, but there goes a butterfly. Now I don't have a house of stone, but I can see the sea. Most of all, I know that I am happy to be me. He's already coming to terms with it. So I love the joke that she's she comes in to help him come to terms with it. And he's like, no, I'm cool. Just let me finish the song. I already figured it out. And she's emotionally affected by it. And he ends up offering her a handkerchief, but he's still wearing his tux. So the handkerchiefs don't stop coming. It's, it's the gift that keeps giving, really. It was a nice touch. The setup for it was good. It's such a bittersweet little song that it's nice to have a little joke to cap it off with. Um, and yeah, and her, her getting all, all misty. Well, that's about it for this show. So let's have a special round of applause for our guest star, Miss Madeline Kahn. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kermit. I've very much enjoyed being on the show. I mean, oh, everyone good. has been so nice. Uh, especially Gonzo. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry it didn't work out. Well, you should be. Now you'll have to go to all those PTA meetings alone. Gonzo's bounced back pretty well. Uh, I mean, you have to wonder how, how firm his grasp on the situation is, though, because he tells her that she's going to have to go to all those PTA meetings alone. Now, listen, I'm not saying he's a doctor. <laughs> he clearly doesn't quite understand biology or... I'm not so sure he knows where babies come from. I don't think anybody's had the talk with him yet. What sucks is we have to talk about another episode. If we didn't, <laughs> we could just talk about Madeline for another hour. Yeah. We were looking forward to this episode because we're both big fans. I remember her rather early death. Or it felt really young at the time being very, very upsetting to me. I mean, I grew up on her movies. There was never a moment she was on screen where I wasn't having a good time. She was so funny. <laughs> she was so funny. My favorite moments of the episode were the scenes where she was just hanging out backstage talking normally. Yeah. You think Madeline Kahn and I hear her in History of the World screaming at her entourage. Could you please step on the same foot at the same time? My, My tits, tits are falling off. off. I love that stuff. And that's that's what I think Madeline Kahn, and that's what I should think. That's her work, and that's how – that's just one of the funniest people to ever live. But there was something really special in this, watching her just being a person. It was interesting to me that that struck you, because that's like the first thing that hit me, too, while watching it. She's one of the, the guests that we've seen that I've had one of the strongest pre-existing associations with thus far. I, I wasn't going to not like her. <laughs> I'm tired, sick, and tired of love. I've had my fill of love from below and above. Tired, tired of being admired, tired of love uninspired. Let's face it, I'm tired. 
show. Hey, we've got a great show tonight because our guest star is Mr. George Burns. So did you tell me earlier you didn't know who George Burns was? I didn't. Wow. All right. This is interesting. It's a great episode, but I I had no frame of reference. The first thing you have to understand is that George Burns has always been old. When I was a kid, he was an old man and he lived until I was an adult. He noticed in this episode that there were several jokes about obituaries and getting old and stuff, right? Mm Mm-hmm. At his expense, he still would live another 20 years. Comedian, actor, singer, writer, and in my lifetime, professional old person, George Burns, was born Nathan Birnbaum on January 20th, 1896. Just want to let that sink in. 19th century. Wow. In New York City. He was the ninth of 12 children born to Dora and Louis Birnbaum, Jewish immigrants from Poland. His father died in 93, though, during the influenza epidemic. I wonder what that's like. And Nate, that's what his family called him, is Nathan, he went by Nate, went to work to support his family. But keep in mind, he's only seven. So his dad died and he had to go get a job at seven. He worked as a shoeshine boy, sold newspapers, ran errands. He also worked as a syrup maker in a candy shop where he, during downtime, would practice singing harmonies with the other kids he was working with. And this is a quote from a story of his. One day, our letter carrier came down to the basement and heard the four of us kids singing harmony. He liked our style, so we sang a couple more songs for him. Then we looked up at the head of the stairs and saw three or four people listening to us and smiling. In fact, they even threw down a couple of pennies. So I said to the kids I was working with, no more chocolate syrup, it's show business from now on. We called ourselves the Pee Wee Quartet, and we started singing on ferry boats, in saloons, in brothels, and on street corners. Uh, Nathan, and this is important, started smoking cigars when he was 14. Now that sounds awful, but I'm going to go ahead and let you know the guy lived to be 100. So, I don't know, you never know. He was drafted by the U.S. Army to go to World War I. <laughs> Again, everybody else in here has been World War II vets. <laughs> he was drafted to go to World War I. But he failed his physical due to his extreme nearsightedness. He always had, you know, did you notice how thick his... uh, He had had the Coke bottle lenses. He had the Coke bottles. He always had those. He always had really bad eyesight. Around then is when he adopted his stage name, George Burns, wanting to hide his Jewish heritage, which I'll admit I don't quite understand, especially if you're working in vaudeville, because a majority of performers were Jewish. But I'm a white Catholic boy from Ohio, so I can't say. Um, It was a different time. There are varying stories of how he picked his name, but my favorite is that Burns comes from Burns Brothers Coal, which is a New York coal company that he used to steal coal off of their trucks when he was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) For his acts, George would often pair up with a female performer doing dancing and singing and comedic patter. He never quite gelled with any of his partners, though, until he met a young Irish Catholic lady in 1923. Her name was Gracie Allen. They became a comedy duo and would get married three years later. All of a sudden, Burns said, the audience realized I had talent. They were right. I did have a talent. And I was married to her for 38 years. Burns and Allen, as they were called, took off. And they got their start in movies in the late 20s and early 30s in a series of uh, comic short films. In the mid-30s, they moved into features, doing two with W.C. Fields, one with Fred Astaire, and one with Bob Hope. The 1939 musical Honolulu, directed by Edward Buzzell, would be George's last film for nearly four decades. They made their way into the radio, doing comic relief for famous band leader Guy Lombardo and his orchestra, but that didn't sit well with a lot of people at home. Uh, They didn't like their music interrupted by this smart-ass husband and wife team, whose droll back and forth wasn't necessarily appreciated. Eventually, they got their own radio show, where they would recreate classic vaudeville stage scenes for the listener. 
Another cup of Maxwell House coffee, George. Sure, pour me a cup, Gracie. You know, Maxwell House is always good to the last drop. That drop's good, too. Well, George Burns is still convinced that he has no place in television. He's tried to conceal his anxiety from Gracie, but she can see that all is not well with her little man. George, you're unhappy about something, aren't you? No, I'm not, Gracie. Oh, yes, you are. I can always tell. When you're happy, you, you smile and your little nose crinkles up. But for a week now, it's just been hanging there. Early on, they were presented as being singles. Gracie would often be the object of affection, not just for George, but for other performers on the show as well. But in 41, they retooled the show and made them a married couple, which they were in real life and everybody knew it. So a typical Burns and Allen exchange went a little something like this. Gracie, suppose you start explaining these Christmas bells. Who got this $25 hat? Oh, I gave that to Clara Bagley. I've decided to break up our friendship. And why did you give her an expensive hat? Well, I have one exactly like it. And when she sees me with it on, then she'll stop speaking to me. There must be cheaper ways to lose a friend. Here's a bill for a bushel of nuts delivered to San Francisco. Who'd you send those to? My mother. That was your own suggestion, dear. Every time I said, what'll we send mother, you said nuts to her. <laughs> I should give your mother a bushel of nuts. What'd she ever give me? She gave you me. I'm as good as that nuts. You can say that again. The supporting cast they had on the Burns and Allen show featured future Bugs Bunny legend Mel Blanc and actress Kate Bradley, known to kids my age as the voice of Betty Rubble on the Flintstones. In 1949, after being on NBC radio for 12 years, they moved to CBS following their pal and mentor Jack Benny. And a year later, they made the jump to TV also on CBS. Their first television program, named the same as their radio show, put faces to the radio characters people had grown to love. They would often break the fourth wall on the show, chatting with the audience, commenting on the action that they themselves were portraying. A little later in the run, they would bring in their adopted children, Sandra and Ronald, in small parts, with Ronald joining the cast in the fifth season as George and Gracie's son, Ronnie. They also started their own production company, a McCadden Corporation, which is named after the street on which Burns' brother lived, which feels kind of random. And in addition to their show, they produce shows for Jackie Cooper, Jack Benny, and the OG Muppet Show guest star, Juliet Prowse. At the end of every show, radio and TV, Burns would look at Alan and say, Say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight. That's where that quote comes from? It is. The popular idiom is that she would respond with a clueless goodnight Gracie of her own, but that again can be chalked up to like collective misremembrance that was never the line, although that feels like her, but it never was. It goes right up there with Play It Again, Sam, as a classic Hollywood lines that were never said. Was I the second fella you ever kissed? The third? Then I talked to Mrs. Quigley, who was there to get some clothes for her husband's nerves. She said he was a very nervous man, and it worried him because he didn't know why. Fourth? So I told Mrs. Quigley, I said, well, if you want to keep him from worrying, why don't you forget about the pills and buy some firecrackers instead? Six. I said, Mrs. Quigley, why don't you set them off under his chair when he isn't looking? He may still be nervous, but at least he'll know why. Gracie, how many fellas did you kiss before me? Goodbye, everybody. In 1958, Gracie retired. She had been suffering from heart disease and it left her exhausted when she worked full time. She had wanted to stop a while back, but she couldn't say no to George. Didn't want to kind of let him down. They were such a great team. 
After she retired, Burns tried to keep going with the show, but without Gracie and her famous Gracie-isms, the program collapsed. And after that, he created another show, Wendy and Me, co-starring the second OG Muppets show guest, Connie Stevens. But that series only lasted one season. On August 27th, 1964, Gracie Allen died at 62 years old of a heart attack in Hollywood, California. The loss of Gracie would devastate George, and he would continue to end most of his acts with a good night, Gracie although she was no longer there to respond. He would never remarry. After doing some more TV and uh, playing nightclubs alongside partners like Carol Channing and Jane Russell and a gig at Carnegie Hall, Burns made his return to movies with the big screen adaptation of Neil Simon's The Sunshine Boys, a role that was supposed to go to his friend Jack Benny, who had died in 1974 of pancreatic cancer. Burns says the only two times he cried in his entire adult life were when Gracie died and when Jack Benny died. The film, 35 years after his last one, earned Burns the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. At the age of 80, he was the oldest Oscar winner in history, until Jessica Tandy won for Driving Miss Daisy in 1989. We've done this sketch 11,000 times, and you always said come in. Suddenly, today it's enter. Why today, after all these years, do you suddenly change it to enter? I'm trying to freshen up the act. Who asked you to freshen up the act? They asked for the doctor sketch, didn't they? The doctor sketch starts would come in and not enter. You want to freshen up something? Put some flowers in here. What's bad about enter instead of come in? Because it's different. You know why we've been doing it the same way for 43 years? Because it's good. In the wake of the Sunshine Boys, at the age of 80, George had a career renaissance. In 1977, he made Oh God, which is a comedy where he played, guess, God. Opposite, and I know this is tiresome, but this is just how things are. Opposite John Denver, who had a fruitful relationship with the Muppets coming up on the horizon. This was followed by two sequels, Oh God Book 2 and Oh God You Devil, in which he played both the devil and God and seemed to have more fun playing the devil. George Burns and George Burns in Oh God You Devil. It'll be fabulous. The first film was pretty funny, but the sequels, which I saw a lot on cable as a kid, are very bad movies. He did The Muppet Show, appeared on the sitcom Alice, as well as the uh, film adaptation of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1978. He made a few more films um, past his 90th birthday, including 1988's 18 Again, which is a body switch comedy where 81-year-old millionaire Burns trades places with his awkward 18-year-old grandson. Now, this is not to be confused with Vice Versa with Judge Reinhold and Fred Savage, or Freaky Friday with Jodie Foster and Barbara Harris, or Like Father with Son with Kirk Cameron. Man, I used to love that guy, but f*** him. And Dudley Moore. Body switch movies really were a popular genre for there for a minute. George kept doing stand-up and nightclub shows, usually portraying himself as a dirty old man. That was kind of the persona he kind of grew into, was dirty old man. I don't think it really was who he was. Always chomping a cigar on stage, and he would use it to you know punctuate his jokes, kind of like Groucho Marx used to. He would time his comedy monologues. This is kind of cool. He would time his comedy monologues based on how much of the cigar he had burned down. So he would know how far he was into his act by how long his cigar was. He's estimated to have smoked around 300,000 cigars in his life. And during his last years, he was he only got he got down to about four or five a day, although he never smoked a cigarette and never smoked any weed in his entire life. Uh, his last film role was a cameo in the not great George Lucas production Radioland Murders. For George's 90th birthday, the city of L.A. renamed the northern end of Hamill Road, George Burns Road. And nine years later, they renamed part of Alden Drive as Gracie Allen Drive, which intersected with the other. And in one of his last public appearances, George came to the dedication and, in true Burns style, quipped that 
quote, it's good to be here at the corner of Burns and Allen. At my age, of course, it's good to be anywhere. How did the cigar chomping comedian stay in such good health and live such a long life? According to him, it was just swimming, walking, sit-ups, and push-ups. He drove until he was 93. His last TV appearance was when he was given the first SAG Lifetime Achievement Award by the Actors Guild in 95. Later that year, he went to Frank Sinatra's 80th birthday party and uh, caught the flu, and it kind of weakened him considerably. He signed a lifelong contract doing stand-up at Caesars Palace in Vegas, and the contract promised him, I remember this very clearly, the contract promised him a gig on January 20th, 1996, his 100th birthday. But when the time came, he was too weak to perform. And in a statement, ever leaning into his Lothario persona, even at the end, said that all he wanted for his 100th birthday was a night with Sharon Stone. 49 days after his 100th birthday, George Burns died at his home in Beverly Hills. He was cremated and interred alongside Gracie in the Forest Lawn Memorial Cemetery in Glendale, California. Their joint headstone reads, Gracie Allen, 1902 to 1964, and George Burns, 1896 to 1996, together again. George, in his last act, finally gave Gracie top billing. George has three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for movies, TV, and uh, live performances and was inducted with Gracie into the Television Hall of Fame in 1988. Okay, so I don't know if this is a fun fact. It's kind of problematic. Kind of, uh, it's a weird fact. Burns appeared on the September 1984 cover of Penthouse Magazine, playing into his, again, dirty old man thing. That issue contained the notoriously unauthorized nude photos of Vanessa Williams, the first African-American Miss America, and also had the first appearance in print of underage porn star Tracy Lords. The cover blurb reads, oh God, she's nude. So not really a fun fact, but notable and not George's fault. I think we can lay that yeah, on penthouse, but of course. And of course, Vanessa Williams went on to have a very successful singing and acting career after she quit being Miss America because of that scandal. I grew up during George's second act, or I guess maybe his third act, um, his early 80s movie career. And he seemed old then. Like when I thought old as a kid, I thought of George Burns. He made jokes about being old. He made age and his longevity part of his act. His apparent defiance of death was part of his persona, you know, <laughs> like, like, look at me, I'm still ticking. His showbiz career lasted more than 75 years. Legend. There's no other word to use, but legend. So it is important to remember that he is 80, <laughs> 81 years old when they did this. So this is Muppet Show number 210. Special guest star George Burns, produced early August 1977, aired that September. Now we got two directors. So this one's this one's a Harris, written by Jewel Henson, Bailey, and Hinckley. We have a new face. It's not really a new face. We did see it once, but we have Fleet Scribbler, who is a gossip columnist. He had a small part in the Rich Little episode. Remember the yeah. when Rich Little had that like press conference thing? He's based on kind of the UK tabloid media that the Muppets had encountered since living in London. Because at that time, the tabloids in the UK were like way worse than they are here. I got a quote from Jerry Jewell here. Naturally, the newspaper writers meaning the people watching the show, the newspaper writers loved him, and they splashed him all over the front pages of the tabloids, actually, the puppet. As soon as we began working with him, though, we realized that he was simply abrasive and awful. We just wanted to get rid of him right away, but there'd been all this publicity about him in England, so we tried to stay with him for several weeks until we could drop him without anyone noticing him. Fleet's going to be fleeting, I guess. And... This is on the Muppets, a rare occasion of them creating a character, like going out of their way to create a character, design a character, assign it a role, and then dump it pretty quickly because it was just not working. Or it's not that it wasn't working. He's just so unpleasant. Yeah, it might be that he was working a little too well. There's a running gag throughout this episode. It requires a little bit of knowledge of Roman history. 
Scooter comes in to give uh, George his warning, and you hear violin music playing. 20 seconds to curtain, Mr. Burns. I'm ready. But, uh, but what is that? Over his shoulder, Gonzo was playing the violin. And George asked Gonzo, what are you doing? It's my new act. Gonzo fiddles while George burns. <laughs> I like that joke. It's a pleasure to hear something that's older than I am. That would be a reference, of course, to the Emperor Nero. That's even before Burns' time. Nero would be 1st century AD. So, yeah. Gonzo's horn fires a gunshot this time. Hopefully everyone in the audience is okay. We get our opening number. Uh, is this the other one you were war- you were wondering about the warning for? Yeah. <laughs> Piggy and a bunch of pigs sing Quanto Legusta, which is a song by Gabrielle Ruiz and Ray Gilbert. It's interpreted different ways. It can mean either whatever she likes or how she likes it, something like that. And it's just a kind of big Spanish Latin number. And uh, I don't know. I don't think it's offensive. It could have gone that way. I don't. In the abstract, I don't necessarily think it is. Someone might say that it's appropriative, but... But at the time, it was just kind of common practice to do these kind of, you know, numbers from other countries, right? What we see there, who will be there? What will be the big surprise? There may be signoritas Uh with dark and flashing eyes. We're on our way. We're on our way. Back up your pack. Back up your pack. And if we stay. And if we stay. We won't come back. We won't come back. How can we go? We haven't got... I mean, there's a cute joke at the end where, well, there it is, your basic Latin number. Well, actually, it's your basic pig Latin number. It's not the first time they've made a piggy pig Latin joke. There is an amazing moment that I'd like to point out that Dave Goles talks about. On one occasion, Jim and I were relegated to a position high up on the balcony. That's this sketch. Far in the background of a Spanish town. Okay, so it is supposed to be Spanish. And they were working with pig musicians. Far below, Piggy was seducing the camera with a spirited musical rendition. During the instrumental break, Piggy began dancing. Meanwhile, I had my pig lean backwards over the balcony (laughs) for an upside-down trumpet solo, and it absolutely broke Jim up. He loved that kind of thing. Um, And I noticed that, too, when I was watching it. It's a funny moment. But that's Dave Goals and Jim Henson up top there trying to entertain themselves because they're not the stars of the sketch. I think it's a very fun, energetic opening to The Muppet Show. These episodes felt so... I felt so at home. Both of them were a treat, for sure. Yeah, I just felt... I felt warm and fuzzy. We had a couple of episodes that were very experimental. These ones are sort of returning to form a little bit, but not in a way that feels cheap or lazy or anything like that. It's just... We we get to relax with the Muppets. This is the show. Yeah. Like, this is the show. So then we go backstage, and like I said, our backstage story is going to involve this guy, Fleet Scribbler, who is a reporter for the Daily Scandal, who manages to take anything you say and turn it into a nasty headline. Sorry, but we don't allow any reporters backstage during the show. What a headline. Muppets banned press reporter thrown out by fraud. Oh, wait. Uh... On the other hand, can I offer you a cup of coffee? What a headline! Frog bribes reporter Muppets desperate for publicity. Uh, This isn't going to be easy. It's timely. I mean, I don't think it's ever not timely. (laughs) And um, then Gonzo runs in and says, uh, hey, Kermit. Kermit, aren't you supposed to be introducing George Burns? Oh, yeah. Uh, Excuse me. What a headline that would make. What? Gonzo fiddles while George burns. (laughs) 
joke is definitely making a comeback. Guess what the name of this episode is going to be. <laughs> Some people just want to fiddle all George's friends. <laughs> so Kermit introduces uh, George with a cigar and a song. There's multiple references now. The Disney Plus does give you a tobacco warning, tobacco, you know, tobacco use warning, which is fair. It's George Burns. But there's also several references in it of the cigars and smoking very casually. Such a different time. <laughs> wow. So Kermit introduces George. Uh, George, it's George and Rolf at the piano. They do a little patter about his old days in vaudeville and how he's been around entertainment forever and how he used to work with a dog act and all this stuff. It's a real honor for me to be playing piano for you. Thank you, Rolf. I haven't worked with a dog for years. You mean you've actually worked with a dog? Oh, sure, back in vaudeville. Those days, dog acts were very popular. So I picked up a dog off the street and went to the theater to do my act. I walked out on the stage with the dog under my arm and stood there and sang my songs. In the middle of my third song, the dog did his act. Twice. He bit me. The dog bit me right in the middle of my top note. And to make matters worse, the theater manager came back, canceled me, and hired the dog. And George sings a song called Train Back Home. I guess I'll take the train back home. Liable to hurt yourself. Play like you're not getting paid. Nice and easy it is. Right from the top. Right. I guess I'll take the train back home. There's no more sights here left for me to see. I've wined and dined and gazed on bill affairs. Till mother's homemade pies look good to me. It's not really a song, I mean it is, but it's part of his act. So, I mean, he wrote it or one of his joke writers wrote it, but it's it's just part of his act. The singing was part of his act always. He would always have a song here or there. It's basically just a little poem with a little bit of a punchline. But one thing my girls really loved, it's all about San Francisco. I don't know if you picked that up. I I might have got that. (laughs) It was weird because I've heard landmark songs before. Sometimes I'll recognize a handful of them or something. But like I've heard songs that talk about San Francisco or the Bay or things like that. But usually not this specifically. Everything that you can get to within 15 minutes. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I thought it was maybe except for Sausalito. Sausalito's a little further away. Yeah, and then it mentioned like Powell and Market. And the cable car specifically. And that turnaround is still right there. I'm going to take the train back home to San Francisco. I'm going to take the train back home to Powell and Market. To see the ferry building. To wave to Oakland. To eat at Fisherman's Wharf. To visit Sausalito. To go to Finocchio. Took me so long to finish the song. I just missed the train back home. Isn't that a nice? This feels so George Burns to me. It's, I can't even. It's hard to explain. <laughs> it's just that's just to me. This is him. Remember how Milton Burrow was very like, I'm Mr. Show Business. I'm the entertainer. Yeah, I'm the entertainer. Exactly. That's what George is as well. But he's not he's he he doesn't feel the need to tell everybody he's the entertainer necessarily. George seems significantly more relaxed, more present. So there's a very funny moment, though, where Piggy is she's in her Pigs in Space costume, which is weird because there's no Pigs in Space in this episode. But I guess part I guess part of the conceit of the show is there are numbers that we don't see, especially if things are going on backstage. Yeah, I don't know who she's talking to, but she yells into her into her room. How should I know what Guantelagusta means? <laughs> so, re- referring, of course, to her earlier act, and then she's cornered by Fleet, who uh, wants to get some gossip. 
and this is for the adults. You know, he's trying to get Piggy to give him some gossip. She's like, I would never turn on Kermit. I'm not going to do that. And he's like, oh, I don't know, man. I was going to. There is such a thing as loyalty to one's fellow performers. Mm, too bad. I also wanted to do a picture spread of you, something for page three. Do you know what a photo spread on page three means in a British tabloid? I mean, if you're asking the question, I can guess. It means naked. <laughs> I think it's the Sun or whichever British newspaper it is, is very famous for the page three naked women. I guess that's one way to sell a paper. In the UK, like a page three girl is a thing, right? It's kind of the equivalent of a Playboy Playmate. Look, buddy, I don't take my clothes off for anyone, even if it is artistic. But it also leads to a very funny moment where Kermit comes in and sees Piggy talking to him. And he just screams, uh, just the other day. Yes, Hey, wait a second. Hey, Scribbler, those are all lies. <laughs> he has no idea what she's saying. He's just assuming. Then we get a musical number. We get four whatnots singing Chattanooga Choo Choo. Pardon me, boy. Is this the Chattanooga Choo Choo? Choo Choo, track 29. Hey, you can give me a shot. Have you ever heard this song before? No. It's a, it, to me, it's always been like a novelty song, you know, or something, a turn of the century thing. But it's actually from 1941 musical. And it was nominated for an Oscar for best song, which I find incredibly silly. And they're basically singing Chattanooga Choo Choo, which is a song about a train. And then slowly from behind them, what appears to be a model train. <laughs> yeah, like that's that's going around someone's Christmas tree. <laughs> So, so it's a funny thing. Like the, the the song mentions track twenty nine, and they're in front of a sign that says track twenty nine. But after they get done the first verse, yeah, then a train comes from behind them. Obviously, it's just kind of like a process shot, like a rear projection shot, and they scatter at the end to get out of the way of the train. But the way the train takes the turn was so obviously just a off the shelf model train because uh, it's it's very funny. But I mean, it was fine, but it was just it was kind of goofy. So Kermit tries to warn George about this uh, tabloid guy that's sneaking around, but. George ain't going to have any of that. He doesn't care. He's been around the block. This might have been one of my favorite bits of the episode because he, he handles it so deftly. Look, I'll get right down to the point, uh, Burns. How much are they paying you on this show? Hey, now, now, wait a second. Oh, let please. me, let me, let me handle this, Carmen. They're paying me $250,000. Oh, come on. Is that a lie? One of my best. Look, Burns, uh, for years you were nothing but a vaudeville actor. Now you made two films. Is it difficult to be an actor? No, I think it's very easy to be an actor. If you're doing a scene where you walk into a room and the man tells you to sit down, if you sit down, that's good acting. You walk in, he tells you to sit down, and you keep standing up, that's bad acting. I always sit down. I'm a good actor. I've been around so long, I can sit down and get paid for doing it. Because the first question Fleet asks is, how much are you getting paid for this? Which is sticky. We know that from previous episodes. That's a sticky subject. Mm -hmm. And I love that George is like, what does he say? $250,000? <laughs> the guy goes, is that a lie? And George says, uh, one of my best. I mean, their payroll is $27. Never forget. But also for that time period, that is, I mean, it's a lot of money today. But back then. This is where Kermit asked him about his cigar use. Mm -hmm. It's so weird to have what is considered like, yes, uh, like a children's television icon going like, hey, how many cigars are you smoking every day? <laughs> About 20 a day. 20 cigars a day? He's a man of class and taste. Not much taste. I imagine that that <laughs> your, uh, your taste buds a bit. Did you notice what happened to the beginning of Veterinarian's Hospital again? Biggie takes a, a nice deep breath. <laughs> Piggy's up in the gas again. I thought we were done with this. I thought that was just like first season stuff, but we're back to it. She could quit anytime she wants. <laughs> but notice in this one, I actually think they're playing it because she is extra giggly in it. <laughs> 
she loses her shit laughing in this one. I think Frank is playing that she's been in the laughing gas this time. Dr. Bob, do you think the telephone needs an anesthetic? Well, if so, make it a local. Why? Because long distance costs too much. <laughs> Wait, wait a minute, uh, Nurse Piggy, you have the next line. And I can't see it. Oh, cool. The line's busy. <laughs> Go back and watch this veterinarian's hospital. Think about the fact that Piggy just took a big snort of laughing gas or ether or something. And then watch how much she laughs in this episode. I don't think that's on accident. Oh, devil ether. It makes you behave like the village drunkard in some early Irish novel. Total loss of all basic motor skills. Blurred vision, no balance, numb tongue. The mind recoils in horror, unable to communicate with the spinal column. Which is interesting because you can actually watch yourself behaving in this terrible way, but you can't control it. Did the UK spot remind you of something? Um. Of a character that we maybe met and we'll never see again? Remember Burlington Burt? No, actually. Who sang the dance hall songs? He was like the gray Muppet, the British guy with the, the top hat. Perhaps you've heard of me, Bert. You've had word of me jogging along, hardy and strong, living on plates of fresh air. Old guy. This is exactly that bit. They just put Fozzie in it instead. They just realized that like, oh, we don't actually need an old British guy to do these old British musical songs. We'll just have Fozzie do it. It's the exact same background, like the backdrop behind him is exactly what they did with him. This kind of Victorian England looking houses, you know, mm-hmm. it's exactly the same thing. It is a music hall song from 1901. Last week, down our alley comes a cough. Nice old geezer with a nasty cough sees. My missus takes his topper off in a very gentlemanly way. Called Watcher Knocked Him in the Old Kent Road. It is exactly the type of song that Burlington Burt sang. I love this number. I love how everyone starts singing along. As soon as Statler and Waldorf started singing along with Fozzie, I'm like, every once in a while, it's great when they're on his side. Watcher, all the neighbors cry. Who you gonna meet? We'll have you walk the street. We'll laugh. I thought I should have died. Not to be the old tent road. <laughs> it takes singing something from the turn of the century. It's, it's easy to play the type with those two. That's a lot more fun than the other of these music hall ones because of the presence of Fozzie. Fozzie gets to still do the song, still do it justice, but also have a lot more personality and be a lot more goofy about it. And when the whole audience kind of like chimes in together at the end and sings, I don't know, I actually felt it. I don't know what the emotion was, but I felt it. Well, it also feels more integrated. With a couple of notable exceptions, when we see like that one-off Muppet that's in presenting a song that, that isn't someone that we recognize, especially if it's an older song, it just sort of fills space. Obvious exceptions of this would be things like uh, The Windmills in My Mind, or, and I hope I'm not misremembering that song title. Yeah, no, that's it, yeah. Or uh, Time in a Bottle, or things like that. Those are, those feel different, because those aren't designed to be repeating gags. Those are supposed to be self-contained, and... Gonzo goes backstage and has a little patter. That's what they would call it in the biz patter with uh, George talking about show business. I'm Gonzo. 
Oh, one of the Marx Brothers, Groucho, Chico, Hoppo, and Gonzo. No, 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 I'm the great Gonzo. I'm in show business, too. Well, how did you get a name like Gonzo? Oh, my mother gave it to me. Your mother? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she died two years before I was born. Well, if she died two years before you were born, how could she give you that name? Well, she, she left, left a, a note, note to, to your my father. father, yeah. I thought so. Gonzo tells a story about his first act uh, where he had a kangaroo that could tell time, like the pocket watch he kept in his pouch or something. Just a little back and forth. What is sweet about this is at the very end, Burns says, Where did he, where did he come from? Sydney. I thought you said he's never been to Australia. Sydney's his agent. Oh, was he got an office in Pittsburgh? Yeah. Used to handle me. Yeah. You know something, Gonzo? You sound a lot like somebody I used to work with. Really? Mm-hmm. <gasps> That's a compliment. You know, you know who that is. Sure, Walter Matthau. Yeah, that's her. <laughs> I must be getting old. I think I enjoyed talking to him. He's he's talking about Gracie. I didn't catch that. Gracie, George. It's important to remember about George Burns. Gracie's death is with him at every single moment. Gracie is with him every single moment. There was no such thing as like George Burns comedian. There was Burns and Allen. Him as a solo act only happened because he lost the love of his life. Like I said, he never remarried. And we're talking, he was alive for a long time after that. And Gracie's death was always with him. And and just Gracie was. Her spirit was always with him. Together again on their tombstone. Like, that was important to him, you know? I I don't think he ever saw the world the same without her. Hmm. Now, we get an amazing, call this a subversion of expectations, where we start off with at the dance, The thing is, the camera angle's shifted, so you know it's not exactly the same. But we come into what is what looks like an at-the-dance sequence. Piggy is chasing Kermit around, but then Kermit breaks into the song. I won't dance, don't ask me. I won't dance, don't ask me. I won't dance, madam, with you. My heart won't let my feet do things they should do. I Won't Dance is originally from the 1934 London musical Three Sisters by Jerome Kern and lyrics by Hammerstein and Harbach. It was used in the 1935 film version of the Broadway musical Roberta. So it's weird. It went from one musical on the stage to another musical on the stage, which is kind of strange. And But in that, it was a dance number for Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. The lyrics were changed for that version. Uh, with So the new lyrics are by Dorothy Fields and Jim McHugh. And this is the version they're singing here. They're singing the version from the Fred Astaire's Ginger Rogers. People would have known this from that movie. Two of the most famous movie dancers of all time dancing together singing the song. And that's why I won't dance. Why should I? I won't dance. How could I? I won't dance. Merci beaucoup. And it's just about a song about someone who doesn't want to dance with somebody else. Although they kind of do. Pretty sure Kermit didn't really want to dance with... (laughs) Okay, in this case, yes. In this case, yes. Man, Piggy's so thirsty. She's like shaking her breasts at him and stuff in this one. Look, if you've got it, flaunt it. This is a recorded analytic program readout. We will start with the upper right of the module. You will note the longitudinally polarized antenna. So we have the luncheon counter monster. Now, the luncheon counter monster is named that because the previous appearance was it was at the lunch counter with uh, in the Nancy Walker episode. Mm-hmm. Comes upon a talking machine. And while the machine is talking and telling you about the different parts of the machine, he starts eating it a little bit at a time. 
This is also an old number. Used to be done with Cookie Monster, or at least the prototype of Cookie Monster, before he was actually Cookie Monster. I knew they did it on Sullivan. I think it was done in the Muppet Meeting films. But So this is a remastered, much like Madeline Kahn in the Beautiful Day Monster thing. This is a, an updated version of something they'd done before. This unit alone is worth over $17,000. By way of contrast, the Doppler sublimated magneto located on the front of the generator can be purchased in any hardware store for about 37 cents. And then, of course, he learns at the end, while the voice inside him is talking after he's eaten the entire thing, that what he has just consumed is the most powerful explosive device in the world. Jim got both of his endings here. Someone gets eaten and something blows up. That's true. So then we find out that Scooter, again, a little traitor, has been feeding gossip to uh, Fleet. Hey, Kermit, do you know about the newspaper reporter who's snooping around here? Yeah, Fleet Scribbler. Well, he asked me to tell him all about the show's scandals and behind-the-scenes dirt. Oh, you know, it's just awful. It was. I didn't know where to begin. <laughs> what? I mean, I could have talked for hours. And then we have a little bit of Fleet and the Swedish chef, and it turns out that Fleet also speaks uh, mock Swedish, so who knows what he's getting from the chef. He seems to be really happy to talk to him, though. So then, get our closing number. It's kind of a weird one. So this is reminiscent of a lot of the ones that we were critical of season one, where you close out the episode with the guests singing and a bunch of Muppets gathering around them. The only difference is this is significantly more dynamic and it's more interactive. Um, and Gonzo messing up every so often absolutely sells it. Yeah, so George comes out to the piano and he and Rolf's like, you want to do another song for us? And he's like, I don't think I came over here just to do one song. All I've done this entire episode is sit in my dressing room and then sit stand by the piano. Those are the two things he does in this episode. They sing two songs. They sing, it all depends on you and you made me love you. Would you sing a song just for moi? I could never say no to a lady. Well, you don't have to worry, then it's only Miss Piggy. <laughs> Call it free bait. <laughs> Where were we? I was about to say yes to a lady. Thank you, Mr. Burns. Now, look, let's get the group out, because the song I'm going to sing needs all the help I can get. Mm -hmm. Okay, come on out, everybody. Here we go. Now, Rolf and Mikey. And all kids, right. I want you all to follow me. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I could be happy, could be sad, could be good, could be bad. It all depends on you. All depends on you. Just old standards from the first quarter of the 20th century. Uh, the second one, you made, you made Me Love You, was made famous by Al Jolson. But besides that, they're just kind of old, just old standards that, which I'm sure were sung in vaudeville shows for decades and would have been something, again, that he would have just broken out into as part of his bit. Do could be beggar, could be king, could be almost any old thing. It all he tells Rolf, though, we're going to need some help. And so they bring out some of the other. Gonzo, Nigel, interesting. Scooter, Baskerville, Miss Mousy, and the Blue Frackle all come out. Uh, kind of an odd mix, probably what they had on hand. And Piggy's there, too. He kind of leads them in a, what would you call, call and response kind of thing. Yeah. You made me love you, I didn't want to do it. Didn't, didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it. 
You made me want Didn't to. Didn't want to do it. But yeah, and then Gonzo keeps slipping. <laughs> or Gonzo's only got one line on a sheet of paper. I don't know what it is. He keeps singing the same line over and over again. I think Gonzo's committed to doing it until he gets it right. I think Gonzo's not ready to move on until he gets it just right. And there were times, dear, you made me feel so glad. So glad. Let's, let's, let's do that again. So glad. So glad. You made me sigh for it. Keep this bit in mind, because when we get to Harry Belafonte, we're going to see something very similar. A group singing a song and one character being comedically offbeat or late is something that we're going to see in Harry Belafonte. Uh, too much success. I don't know what to say about this other than it was nice and fun. Gonzo makes it funny. He does, but there's also... So, George as a guest without having any context. And I, I think that is something that is going to be a, an absolute strength in some of our guests is not yeah. needing to know who they are for them to be entertained. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Milton Berle r- relies very heavily and very obviously on you knowing he's kind of that guest that's going to expect you to kiss the ring. For both of tonight's guests, you could enjoy them very much without knowing who they are. And I, I've got a clear bias for Madeline, but the way that she played that episode... say, And they have very different energies, obviously. They're, oh, they're nothing alike. I also think it's, it is important to remember, even if you don't know anything about George Burns, that he's an 80-year-old man mm-hmm. doing these numbers. A very healthy 80-year-old man, but an 80-year-old man doing these numbers. So it's just kind of... I get a grandpa feel from it. <laughs> You know, like yep. this is, you know, grandpa sitting by the piano telling you stories and singing songs. You know, your grandpa just happens to be George Burns. If it wasn't for the, like the Gonzo stuff is funny. So the number is funny. Even without that, it's just kind of um, comforting. Yeah. Kind of sweet. These are songs that George Burns has been singing for decades. These are both standards from 1913 and 1926. And he is still older than both of them. These are songs that were written in his lifetime. <laughs> He's grown up with these songs or these are like pop hits to him. I mean, if you think about it. <laughs> The second one came out in 1913, which means he's like 17. So this is like, smells like teen spirit for him. Yeah, that was 17 when that came out. And so like, it's the music of his youth and he's just sharing it with the puppets and they do a really good job. And there's no real conflict other than Gonzo keep messing it up and nobody gets mad at him or anything. And then um, Fleet tries to get a little bit more info out of George talking about trying to hook him and Piggy up romantically. And George does what he does to anybody when he's tired of them. He just blows cigar smoke in their face. I do not endorse that. Secondhand smoke is a real thing. Fleet's probably taken in tons of secondhand smoke at this point. But some people, it's okay to blow smoke in their faces. Great episodes. Yeah. Like, I was so happy this week. Like, I mean, listen, we're going to be happy a lot of weeks. But I was excited about Madeline. I was excited about George Burns. Like, I I hadn't watched that episode in a long time. And the quality through these is top notch. There's a, the animal thing is still weird to me. Felt like a little bit of, uh, I don't know, felt like a little bit of spackle almost. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Both guests were phenomenal. They were amazing, but they were also very representative of them as performers. They played to their strengths as performers. You know, I, I, I felt them both. I don't know how, I don't know how to say it, but like I, I felt that I, both of them were equally, I love Madeline, but they were both equally just as comforting and as funny and as welcome. I watched these with my kids and like they were both very welcome in my home tonight. I could absolutely understand that. It did make me miss Madeline a lot. And I'm not going to lie. When we get off of this, I'm watching a Mel Brooks movie. As you should. Or maybe I'll check out Paper Moon because I've never seen it. 
So whenever I think Madeline Kahn, I, I know it's, I don't even know if it holds up. I don't even know if it's inappropriate these days or if it's racist or well, I don't know what. But man, the scene in History of the World <laughs> with Gregory Hines. <laughs> Aspects of that are not going to age well, but the eunuch test is something that I will stand by forever. <laughs> it's, because it's, so it's such a great funny. scene. It's so funny. It's, it's the first thing I think of when I think of Madeline Kahn. I think of her in that like rickshaw. My tits are falling off! For a minute, and then, yeah, and then the eunuch test. <laughs> And just the look on Gregory Hines' face the whole time. Next time, the days of swine and roses. We will be back with episodes 211, which is special guest star Dom DeLuise, and episode 212 with Bernadette Peters. We will be watching the DVD version of 212 of the Bernadette Peters episode because two songs are missing on Disney Plus for rights issues. So we will be talking about the one that's on the DVD because there are two songs, I think, sung by Robin that are cut out of the Disney Plus version. Bernadette Peters, I know a little bit. She was in like The Jerk with Steve Martin and stuff. And then Dom DeLuise is Dom DeLuise. He's a, if you don't know him from anything, you know he's Pizza the Hut. I know him from that. And randomly Munchie. Munchies? Not Munchies. The sequel to Munchie that was aimed at kids. Munchie. Life's not looking so great for Gage. Wish I was dead. To be or not to be? Arriba. Until. Who said that? Me, I did, pal. I'm your new friend. I help. I dazzle. I make better. Roger Corman and New Horizons Home Video bring you the family fantasy adventure, Munchie. The all-star sequel to the video blockbuster, Munchies. So Munchies was the horror movie that was like the Gremlins knockoff. And then they had right, two yeah, yeah, yeah. sequels. The first one featured a very young Jennifer Love Hewitt. And okay. it was like, it just became this wish granting honeycomb mascot voiced by Dom DeLuise, which was apparently a huge part of my childhood. We will talk to everybody soon. I'm Chad. I'm Nick. Take care. Get, get vaccinated, please. That's our official stance. You absolutely should. It, it is. Actually, I've seen this post floating around like, stop talking about it like it's not a moral decision. It's absolutely a moral decision. Just, just be good to your neighbors. And the reason you don't have polio is because of vaccines. They work. This is not experimental medicine. The way they got to this vaccine is a new technology. We've been doing vaccines a very long time. This is something science really, really knows how to do. If it turns out there's a bunch of 5G Bill Gates tracking device software in there, I'll owe you a beer. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio. My tits are